Well, it is finally here, episode number 100 of In The Car With Clint. Let's go. School was kind of moving along nicely until uh, I moved to Japan. So I did my year 11 of, my first year of year 11 was in Japan, in Nagano, Japan. I lived with a host family over there, um, the Shimojima family. So there was a, an exchange program organized where I flew to, to Nagano, lived with the, this family, mum and dad and two sisters that lived at home. There was three girls in, in the family in total. I was very selfish through that period. Um, I didn't assimilate with Japanese culture as well as I should have. I didn't study at school. I didn't care about anyone but myself. Um, I didn't abide by the laws of the country. Um, and probably my single biggest regret from all that is that I, don't st I never stayed in touch with that family after I came back, which is really bad. And there's periods where I look to go back and you know I've been in China and thought about flying to Japan and surprising them. And it's 20 years ago I left there, so who knows where they're at but um so i came back from japan and i was would have gone into year 12 so the last year of high school with my friends uh i hadn't studied anything in japan because i didn't do anything while i was there except play um poker on a game boy and um smoke cigarettes in the <laughs> in the um photo developing room so i did i did photography over there and because i was like i don't know I was a ghost effectively, like white guy in the middle of a completely Japanese school that everyone recognized but no one cared about and I'd just disappear into the photo developing room and smoke diaries and blow out through the, the exhaust fan. I'm sure the exhaust fan went out to where a bunch of teachers were smoking. But um, And so I came back and I had to redo year 11 so that was real challenging for me because I had, I, and I've never had a problem making friends or um, fitting into social circumstances, but so I had made a whole new group of friends. So that year 11 year and the year 12 year at that point. So I was kind of with my friends, but then my other friends were in year 12 and it was really hard. And then when that group of friends that I grew up with moved to uni, I was on my own in the school and I just stopped caring about um, education. I wasn't dumb. I could have, I would have, I was probably on track to get an 85 or a 92 TER if I'd applied myself and didn't drink my way through year 11 and year 12. And so uh, I got to a point where I had a job at Domino's, Domino's Pizza at Durnancourt, and I was a delivery driver there. And I, um, I think the store got purchased and it was under new ownership. Mark Paxton bought the store and he and I somehow worked out that I'd be better off leaving school before getting my year 12 certificate and managing a Domino's Pizza franchise. So I went to Domino's uh, as a, gonna say 19 year old I did I must have done two or three years there and that's where I really learned about pro policies and procedures and um, an unbelievable thing for anyone that, that's that's got kids in their teenage years that are thinking about let, I guess pushing them in a direction if you can get a job in a McDonald's or a KFC or a um, or a fast food restaurant um, it's it's fast-paced it's well policied. There's not too much variation around the things that need to be done. So, you know, working at Big W or Woolworths was a little bit mundane for me. It wasn't enough fast paced. Like I worked at Woolworths when I was young as well and stocking shelves is just boring. Whereas Domino's was fast paced, like ring phone, like these pizzas are gonna go out now, hurry up, cut it faster, make it quicker, answer the phone, service the customer. Um, people tend to complain more about um, pizzas being incorrect than 
running out of apples at Woolworths. Like it, you can, you start dealing with customer complaints really quickly. And you know, as a 17, 18, 19 year old, or a 15 year old for some of the staff there, you get put in some really challenging situations early. So. Domino's have this Domino's development fund where you can save up to buy a store. So they garnish your wages until you've saved $50,000 and then they go guarantor for you to buy a store and then they've got this funnel of really good managers buying stores and it keeps you engaged. Because at the time I was on 26 grand a year running this shop and I was happy because I was saving up for my future and I knew if I got my shop I'd get my boat and my house and like everything would be cool. Um, but my mate was working at Newton's Santa Metal and they had an irrigation shop called T&I, which is turf and irrigation. It was owned by um, two guys, Frank and Serge, and I went in there as a shelf stocker dude, similar to how a lot of people start in WaterPro and, you know, went there to um, serve customers and fill shelves and sweep floors and all that. And climbed up the ranks there over the next five years. Um, and when I left Newton's, I was the sales and marketing manager for the business. Michael uh, was my um, business partner when we left Newton's, but I met Michael when I was working at Domino's. He actually taught me how to deliver pizzas, so he was the first person that, um, he was probably the most senior person at the shop that wasn't a manager. He was a, you know, had done time there. He'd respect, he was respected by the management. He understood what he was doing. So they were just like, Clint, Michael, Michael, Clint jumped in his Holden Astra and off we went. Did a, I remember the house. I lived near the house we delivered to. I still vividly remember him like teaching me how to deliver pizzas. Um, and so him and I worked together a lot through that period. And then when I moved to Newton's um, in that, you know, 2004 period or whenever it was, um, they were looking for someone to come across they were looking for more people and you know what it's like, your business owner, like Clint, you're doing really well. Do you have any mates that are looking for work? And I'm like, yeah, actually I do. And I think there was a period, well, that's how I got the job there. So my mate from school got me the job there and then I got Michael the job there. And so Michael and I both climbed quite quickly. He had a software engineering education. Um, he'd finished year 12, so he was more successful than me. Uh, and then he was in the purchasing side of things. It was, it was more his style and I was in sales and the reason we left, or the reason I left, was very vastly different to the reason he left. I don't think he enjoyed it there at all. Um, he always wanted to start his own business. I was a really good employee. Like I didn't really have um, any major drive to leave. Like I, I saw myself climbing through a corporate ladder, and I never, I was never really looking outside. Like I knew that, you know say for the sake of numbers, like if I was on 50 grand there, I could move to, to becoming a, a sales rep um, for 70 grand later. But I was, I liked the idea of working in that culture, family owned business. I was looking for more money. Um, I wanted double what I was on. I thought I was doing an unbelievable job at the time. The irrigation shop was turning over $3.3 million. I saw that, that I was the reason that it was doing that and that I deserved more money. Um, I didn't get more money and I don't think that was like the catalyst. Like I was like, oh yeah, cool. I don't get more money. I asked, but I didn't get it. But Michael and I used to go walking. I've always had that battle with my weight, you know, and he, he didn't. He was always doing fitness and going to the gym. So he's, we just started walking at night um, and we just got talking about the different options and he's like, I'm going to leave. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, you should leave too. Like we should start a business together. And, and we're kind of like, well, what should we do? What would we do? And we came up with this idea to open a company. Well, at the time it was a partnership, but we registered the name as Fluid Designs. Now, we'd worked in an irrigation business selling irrigation and I understood pipes and water and pumps and that 
Um, and we, we started doing a few little jobs for builders. Uh, there's a guy called Joe Malisi, who I, I'm pretty sure Malisi Homes or Malisi Construction. There's two different Malisis now. Um, him and his brother have different companies, but they're massive now. Uh, he got us to start installing pumps in his water features and doing some basic repair work. And I remember getting like $50 for this to go like labor to change this pump out. And we were like 50 bucks. And then he just kind of convinced me to quit. So he quit and I quit within about two weeks of each other and we started what was then Fluid Designs because the water feature market in 08, it was probably 06, 07 was nuts, but 08, 09, people were getting water features put in their house. They'd build a house and they'd have a wall with water coming down it. And we're going, well, that's 20 grand or 10 grand or five grand and we can build it for half that. We can make this much money. So we registered Fluid Designs and off we went. And so that, it didn't go very well. Uh, not as many people wanted a water feature built as we thought. And I don't think anyone wanted two kids with no construction experience building a two, three, four, five thousand dollar water feature in their backyard. So we had a guy called Nick and we quoted to do some work for him and we were way out of our depth. We put the wrong waterproofing on the wall, the tiles fell off. We never finished a water feature. So to date, we never actually finished building any water features. So Michael and I were like, oh, we need to make money. How are we gonna do this? So we worked out that if we could install lawn and irrigation, um, there's plenty of that work out there. Everyone's getting lawn and irrigation put in. I understood the irrigation from working at, at um, TNI or Newton's Irrigation. We were buying from two irrigation shops in South Australia at the time um, and kind of alternating between them because we were trying to find a good level of service at a good price. And one of the, um, they're both still around today. One of the the businesses were very, very professional, held a lot of stock, had well-trained staff, all dressed really nicely, but their pricing was inconsistent. So we'd buy stuff from them one day and then the pricing was put up the other day and it, it almost felt like their model was around that, like um, get the people in with a low price and then try and sneak it up over time so that we can maximize our profit and all, the, all, of, the, all, of, all of us get bonuses. And then the other business, um, you know, was probably under-resourced and didn't have the level of skilled staff that we thought that they needed. They were competitive and their pricing was always stayed the same, but you were kind of getting what you paid for. And so Michael and I were like, there's got to be, I think Michael really wanted to open a shop. Um, he was like, we can do this better. Like we can offer the level of service that these guys um, are looking for and we can offer the consistency around pricing that the market deserves. And I reckon we were probably chatting to a few people at that point, like we were doing contracting for different people that were buying irrigation from other places and they're like, if you opened a shop, we'd buy from you. So we went, all right, cool, we're opening a shop. It's easy to say, but it's not that easy to do. So we started having meetings with wholesalers of irrigation. Um, obviously they knew me more than Michael, but they knew Michael, they dealt with me from a sales point of view, but they dealt with him from a purchasing point of view. And we had this little office in Holden Hill. It was like an old um, hairdressing salon slash tattoo parlor as part of a little L-shaped kind of corner store complex where there was a deli and there would have been a few little businesses like a, you know, a struggling accountant and a struggling irrigation installation business <laughs> and a struggling deli. Um, and so we were working out of my home for a while, but it just got too much and, you know, it's... Um, when you're doing it, running a business partnership and you're in a marital partnership and you're all in the same house together, it can get a bit clashy. So we were in this place at Holden Hill. I think we were paying $100 a month or $100 a week to rent this place and we, were, we shat ourselves about that lease like it was so much money and I was freaking out like, how are we going to pay for this? We'll just have to take a pay cut and we'll have, we've got to get it done. 
so we had these early meetings with the first suppliers there and we're like, we're opening an irrigation shop. And they're like, yeah, okay, where? <laughs> and we're like, over there. Like it was at that time, it was Kent Town. And then we went and found a building in Stepney. So that was Water Pro 1, Stepney, 1 slash 36 Henry Street, Stepney. Um, so we went there and we were like, we're going to open an irrigation shop here. And we got one of the suppliers to back us. And they're like, yep, we'll... Uh, We'll give you an account, we'll do the right thing. Like, and they put themselves on the chopping block because you think about it, like we've, we're these two kids that have come from one of their existing business, like existing customers, and that we're like, we're gonna open an irrigation shop. They would have copped so much heat from the market for opening our accounts. I think for them, if they look back now, we're over a million dollars a year with them, that one supplier. I think they would have been like, yeah, we made the right call. But that could have gone easily the wrong way. And then, you know, the other, the other people, um, could have boycotted them and it could have gone really badly. So we got that initial account up and running. I think our opening stock order with them was 20 grand or 30 grand. We got we negotiated 60 days or 90 days terms. They gave us cardboard boxes to put in our shelving and all that. And then obviously all the other suppliers kind of followed suit. They knew my pedigree, so I think they felt safe that we were gonna be able to sell it. But if they knew how much money we didn't have, there's no fucking way that they would have done it. We had, we borrowed $20,000 to open the shop. We went and signed a lease for a year at $47,000 plus GST plus outgoings a year. And we had to pay 10 grand up front because that was our first month's rent or two months rent. And then we went and bought some computers from the recycled office shop, 200, 286 bucks for these old IBMs that were in um, a school at some point, we opened what was then Fluid Design. So when I said before, Fluid Designs was kind of two different businesses. Fluid Designs was, a, uh, uh, it was originally a water feature company, then it moved into a lawn and irrigation installation company, and then Fluid Designs became an irrigation shop at Stepney. So um, that 20 grand that we borrowed, the bank weren't, we didn't have any equity or anything. I think Celeste and I were renting. So the bank were a little bit reluctant to give us that 20 grand, so we took that we had some deposits. We were installing underground rainwater tanks through that period. The Fluid Designs also installed underground tanks. We had a deposit from a client that was sitting in, in an account as a hold while we ordered the stock. We used that deposit as collateral against a $20,000 loan, borrowed the money and then took the deposit out and had the 20 grand. It bought, gave the, uh, the guys from um, the landlord 10 grand. We had 10 grand left to buy shelves, pallet racking, and the counters, and the computers, and then we bought stock on Hock from our suppliers, and crossed our fucking fingers, and like sprinted as hard as we could. When we first signed the lease at Stepney, it was pretty daunting, but we were kind of like fearless young, I don't know, idiots isn't probably the right word, but you know, we weren't too concerned about the result. We worked hard. Um, all the customers that had said that they would come across and support us when we opened the shop didn't, and they then they don't. So for any business owners out there looking to start a shop, don't don't rely on the the, the people jumping ship. They had their reasons, but you know I've still got guys that we're now 12 years in, and I've still got customers that I'm chasing that I thought would come over 12 years ago. So we had we borrowed, begged, stole, had family come in and help. My mate's dad, so Goody, one of my best mates, his dad's a cabinet maker. He came and like stuck the laminate on our bench tops for us. We we made some stupid decisions, bought some like the laminate there was like this like uh, Italian marble looking laminate, but it was blue, blue and grey marbled laminate. It was disgusting. 
we just did heaps of stupid shit like that. We borrowed the forklift from our neighbors, so we didn't have a forklift, they had an electric forklift. So we'd go there and we negotiated that we'd, like the lady at the front counter and I got along really well. And so I'd be like, hey, can we borrow your forklift? And then she's like, yeah, don't worry about it. And they didn't care, it wasn't their forklift, they were a big corporate. So then we'd give them a carton of beer every couple of months, or they'd come and have beers with us. And you know, I've stayed in touch with a few of them. I'm still friends, friends on Facebook with a couple of the guys that were there. This is like seven or eight years ago and kind of followed their careers afterwards. And you know, I'm sure if we bumped into each other in the street, we'd stop and have a beer, no stress. Um, so we, we borrowed the forklift and it was just two of us. And Michael and I would, um, I'd go out and canvas like my client base that I knew and go, hey, can we sell you stuff? And he would, so the idea was that Michael was responsible for the accounting and the margins and the purchasing and I was responsible for the people and the sales and the quoting kind of thing. So we had, it, it, was, it worked well, it suited both of us. We opened February 19, 2010 or 29. Um, and our first sale was a back, uh, a 20 mil double check, no, a 20 mil RPZ for Craig from Immaculate Landscape, who's still a client of ours today. Uh, and I still have that invoice somewhere. Like, it's funny, you talk to people, I listened to a, a thing the other day on the guy that invented Shopify. And he's like, you ask anyone that runs a Shopify site, they'll be able to tell you what they sold, where they were, how much it was, the first sale they made on the Shopify. Now, I don't remember our first online sale because it was very blurry. But I remember the first time he bought that, and that was before we actually opened. So it took a long time. It takes, it takes kind of six weeks to build a shop, and we thought we could move in on January first and be open January first. But there's so many things you don't think about. You wait, and you're delayed by other people because no one else gives a shit that you're trying to grow a shop. So the shelves get there late, the stock gets there late. Customers don't need stuff; they hold stuff back. But anyway, that first, so that Feb, I'm pretty sure we did about eight grand, and then I think. The next month we did like 40 grand and then we did 60 grand and then we did 80 grand and then we did 100 grand and it just grew up to a million dollar business relatively quick. If you look back on it, it probably didn't feel like it at the time, but to grow a million dollar business isn't easy. And so we had Michael's friend Luke doing admin for us because he had done accounting at uni, but was a, he's a musician. So he was kind of like, you know, making music, happy to work. And then our first sales role we hired was Chris, who still works for WaterPro today, manages WaterPro. There was a period when we were in that shop that we were still installing underground rainwater tanks and running the shop, so we had kind of cash coming in from that, but it was a very interesting time. And I remember vividly having a builder that, or a, a, a company that was holding money against us, it was $40,000. That I was genuinely concerned if we didn't get that money when we like when when it got to a point where we had to you know really chase that money hard, and if we didn't get that money, the day that we got it, like Celeste and I were going to skip a mortgage payment kind of thing. Like it was, I'm sure I could have called in some favors, but I didn't want to ring people and ask for help. So there was some that was probably the scariest time through there. But um, we never missed wages. I don't believe I, I'm sure if any staff that worked for me through that period did i'd love to hear about it but we were really conscious to make sure that the staff were always looked after suppliers got paid late and that was for a long time i remember hr products telling me for years we were kind of our average payment days were 55 to 60 days from end of month and it's meant to be under 30 and they were really supportive and you know it's there's 20 things that could have gone wrong in that first year that could have stopped it from happening hr products could have closed our account for not paying on time you know some one customer might not have come across that we needed. Summit Landscaping were massive for us. Um, 
the owner of Summit's now retired and they've shut that, the major part of their business down. But he, they came across pretty early. Martin from Elton, he was working for Summit at the time. Him and I were close, we did a lot of work together. Um, they, um, they were one of the first customers to go, yeah, we'll buy from you. Um, and I think without, say, them, we might not have made it. Like, there's a lot of those little, I guess, what people would call luck. Uh, and I think there is an element of luck there that we managed to find a place in Stepney that worked. We managed to find a landlord that was like, yeah, okay, we'll give you guys a go. Because, like, who are, who are these two kids that walk in and negotiate? We're going to open an irrigation shop. And then an irrigation supplier could have said no. The bank could have said no. Like, there's, there was, it was an interesting first year. And we really had no idea what we were doing. Like, we, for that first 24 months, I didn't realize this till later, but we had only paid bass. We'd only lodged our bass three of the eight months that we were required. And I'm pretty confident we didn't pay superannuation for our staff for 24 months. We were in the Stepney location for, I think two years, two or three years. And Michael and the uh, real estate agent really didn't get along well. Like I didn't like him, but I've always been able to kind of like probably be soft with people. Like, you know, be probably a big, uh, one of my downfalls as well as one of my strengths is like, I won't fire people because I don't want the conflict. I'd rather pay the rent because I, you know, I don't want to have a difficult conversation. So I put myself in a situation. Obviously we were paying our suppliers pretty late. We were also paying our landlord pretty late and, and he would rock up and just be a, a challenge. So we decided that we were going to move from Stepney and we were going to look for another building. And at the point we had turnover, so we were okay. Um, we moved to, um, well, we started looking around and we found this building in Kent Town, which was an old office building. And um, everyone that looked at like even I looked at it and I was like, you're crazy. So Michael was the reason we went to this, the building that we're in now. And he's like, no, this is perfect. We've got front access, back access. We've got a warehouse, we've got the shop. We just have to knock all these walls out and we'll be fine. So same deal, started negotiating, um, managed to find the only building in probably South Australia that was for lease that used to be owned by, or that was owned by someone that used to own an irrigation shop. Um, so our landlord used to own an irrigation shop and he understood the business. He probably knew the margins. He saw the hunger. I think he, there was, a, that was a, another situation of luck where he had two or three people looking for that building and I only found this out later. Um, that he had people offering more money for that building, but he chose us because we negotiated and said that anyone that just walks in and signs a lease without attempting to negotiate is probably not gonna be still, still trading in 24 months. I like the cut of your jib kind of thing. He didn't say that, but you guys are, you know, you guys have shaped, come and tried to negotiate. You've shaved five grand off the rent. You're gonna, you're gonna be fine. Okay guys, so this is Waterpro Kent Town, our third location after Stepney and then Salisbury. We had a very large team based here up until recently when we split the team up and took a bunch of them down to Dry Creek. Um, so I'll show you around and give you a bit of a, an insight on what each room was and what we did here and um, hopefully, you know, maybe re reminisce on some of the, the funny things that have happened along the way. You can see where the old rooms were. So there was a wall here. Can you see the, like you can probably see it, but there was a wall here and there was a wall where Daryl's standing. And then there was a wall under there. So this was all offices. So they, they used this as a, what was it? A, um, 
like a tele, like it was just the sales office thing. So this whole room was three people's offices and a hallway and a printer. So we oh, oh, we don't own the building; it's we rent the building. Um, Kent Town's such a a hustle and bustle and kind of suburb that we're getting squeezed. Think, you know, China when they build all those high rises around that one person's house that won't sell. That'll be us. Uh, hopefully we can buy the building and then we'll lock it down. So it's become kind of progressively challenge, progressively, increasingly challenging for people to be able to park the cars out the front and get trailers here. And that was part of the reason of opening Dry Creek. Um, but yeah, not much to it really. Retail outlet, four counters. Most of my team, well, hey, half the team's here now. Um, that was my office. You can have a look at my office if you want. The old podcasting studio. So this is where we were, where I had an office originally. I had a desk here and a casting couch there, like a black couch. <laughs> it was quite tight. Um, and then I moved out of here because I was getting too much. Everyone that came here would walk in and talk to me. This is the worst office if you want to get work done. So I think I eventually put my admin here um, so that they weren't interrupted. So Jamie was in here for a bit. I think Chris used it as an office for a bit. It was a podcasting studio for a bit. That's what this is from. Um, very. Uh, Gary V shelving. I built this myself. Uh, it won't surprise you that I built it the night before I had to do a podcast. If you look at the early podcasts on WaterPro's channel, the full landscape, you'll see this shelf almost empty because <laughs> we didn't have anything. So that was this room. Now it's just a boardroom, I think. This area has had an interesting life. So it's been like a two collect area. I think that is, that's what it is now. Um, it was, we used to manufacture lawn hub here like like some serious volumes of lawn hub. You'll be definitely be able to find photos of us packing here um, in over the, after that Black Friday sale that we had last year. This was all done, it was all done here. So um, this is the back half of the shop. Not as much stock here as there used to be now that it's all down at Dry Creek. It's a lot more open. Um, and then we got to a point where we'd outgrown this location and it was starting to, the cracks were starting to show. We, you know, we were very disruptive. We'd have trucks parked everywhere. We'd be blocking off roller doors and the like. And that's when we ended up looking at alternative accommodations and we've rented the building over there, uh, which is, it was housing our admin IT and media team for not long, hey, eight months, not even six months. And then we found that we needed to go again. So we went to Dry Creek and now we've got this building sitting there, but we're pretty confident we'll move back in uh, in some capacity to that building pretty soon. Uh, Dry Creek's kind of starting to burst a bit. I'm looking at hiring some more people um, so we might end up back over there within the, maybe even next month, who knows. So that's it, that's, this is the back alley of Kent Town. Um, it's, like I said, it's getting crazier and crazier. There's, you know, it's just harder for us to find parking and it's just properties becoming more, very valuable and yeah, that's it. I don't know, you got anything else you wanna know? So, we found that building at this point, Matt was working for us. So Matt, who's now the general manager of Waterproof and Railways um, had worked for us. And I think he had left. Uh, he and Michael didn't see eye to eye on a lot of shit. And Matt's, as you know, the, the kind of guy to kind of um, like tuck that opinion up inside and just, you know, take it home and go to bed with it. So uh, Matt left to chase his, I think, what was he doing then? He was going to do some, uh, some essay water stuff. Um, but Matt, hadn't no maybe he started his own business at that point so he didn't have a heap of work so we ended up paying matt to knock down all the walls and get, help us get that shop ready um and michael and i moved from stepney to kent town and set up water pro kent town and shut down water pro 
Depney. Uh, my name is Matt Irving. I am the general manager of WaterPro and Railways. Um, traditionally, it was just WaterPro back in the day. Uh, I've been with the company for eight and a half years now. Uh, I guess starting uh, when I first joined, um, Clint and Michael at the time back in Stepney were looking for a junior delivery driver warehouse. Um, person. I was currently looking for work to maintain in the irrigation industry, uh, took on the job. Um, I guess at that time it was made clear to me that I was probably the most qualified person that was also going to be the least paid person, um, but wanted to stay with the company and look sort of, I guess it looked like a pretty enjoyable place to be. Um, so yeah, I joined, uh, was working in the, the warehouse, packing orders, jumping in the van, um, delivering orders out to people. Um, at that point, we also had a store in Salisbury, so there was shifts that were being done down there as well. Um, I guess as time progressed, I sort of went into more of the sales and, and commercial quoting, um, working alongside um, Chris, who was already in the business at that point, doing um, some commercial quoting. Uh, yeah, so went from there, uh, I guess we had Chris, um, Michael, Clint, uh, myself sort of, I guess, predominant and, and Tabs at the time doing quite a little, uh, decent amount of work and we're consistently growing out of Stepney, which has been pretty cool. Um, from there, went to, I was with WaterPro at that point for maybe 12 months um, and then left WaterPro, I guess, as I didn't get on very well with uh, Michael, who was Clint's business partner at the time. Um, sort of wasn't an environment, I, d I guess, that he was creating that didn't, uh, was for me. Um, so I decided to leave. Uh, went out and did irrigation installations myself um, and actually ended up coming back to subcontract for WaterPro uh, behind the counter while he had staff on leave. So Chris would go on annual leave and then I would come off the tools and actually come back in and serve behind the counters as a subcontractor for Clint. Um, I was running my own, I guess, irrigation installation and maintenance business at the time. Clint offered me a position to come back and work for WaterPro again. At this point, we were talking about going into Kent Town. Um, from there, uh, I guess Clint was actually kind enough to help, I guess, with the transition of bringing me back in also facilitate the the acquisition of or sorry the sale of my business as well so water pro salisbury was a was another challenging time it was a massive failure we went too early on it we didn't have enough staff there the staff we did have there weren't very good um one of them in particular um didn't really care about what he was doing and it was not the right area, not the right time. We didn't have enough capital behind us. It was just wrong. I guess the funny thing was, you know, all, we had uh, our shelving with the, the fittings in it. We had all boxes across the top, but all those boxes were actually empty. We just had them there to make it look like we had a lot more stock than we did. So we used to, um, every day we'd walk around the shop and order in what we'd, what we'd sold essentially the previous day. Um, you know, ordering drip line, five rolls at a time, now we're ordering it five pallets at a time. We weren't going to pay to transport our forklift from Stepney to Kent Town, so I drove it, <laughs> I drove it there unregistered. <laughs> I hope there's a statute of limitations on that. But we basically had, I put some pallets on it to make it look legit, 
and had a car in front of me and a car behind me that were ours and they just basically <laughs> escorted me from Stepney to Kent Town like I was like the president trying to get to a to a, a speech without getting assassinated and we've kind of gone through all these back streets to get there but we got the forklift there so we opened Kent Town um, and had our team there and you know got started on that and that was probably around the time where I started to feel like I didn't want to be in business with Michael anymore um, my values and his values were not aligned the way he wanted to do things weren't the way wasn't in line with the way I wanted to do things um, and I probably should have had a difficult conversation with him earlier and I, I probably let it fester too much and I really started to resent him as a business partner and he probably felt the same way about me as well. Um, and then I think I'd had Jack at that point. So Celeste and I got married in January of 2010 uh, and Jack was born in 2013. And I remember promising Jack as a six month old, I was feeding him one night and, and I, was, I think I was crying and I was just like at a point where I, I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't want to be in a partnership anymore. Um, and I promised Jack that we'd, I'd change and it wouldn't be like this. And I mustered up the courage and I typed up an email to Michael because I couldn't even confront him to talk to him about it. Like I, I really don't like confrontation and I didn't want to have a conversation about it and I, I thought that it was going to go in the wrong direction. I typed this email up um, about explaining how I felt, sculled one to two bottles of red wine and hit send and closed my laptop and went to sleep. And then... I think I got a message or an email from him the next morning. Michael used to go to the gym in the morning before work, so I'd open the shop at seven and he'd come in at eight and we'd try to do an eight, seven, four, five kind of thing. Um, and he's like, you want to talk about that email? I'm like, yeah, and we talked about it. And he's like, look, I'm probably comfortable with selling you my half. Like he'd talked about wanting to leave the business and be an inactive director and still take a director's cut. And I just couldn't see it working. The shop was making, I think we made, I don't know. We were making our wages basically, so you weren't really buying anything, we were just buying stock. So uh, we negotiated a buyout. Um, he was really good. He said, Look, I'm, I don't want the money up front because I was going to try and borrow the money and pay him out in full. And he's like, No, like, obviously the business can't sustain it. Just pay me $1,000 a week and that'll give me a runway to start my own thing and do my own business. And it would, wouldn't take too much pressure, it wouldn't pressure water, put, wouldn't put water under too much pressure. The business was Waterpro at this point. In 2010, we converted it from a partnership to a company because we'd made money, too much money, and there was tax reasons for that. And so we, I bought Michael out, and then I think we were at Kent Town at this point. 20 weeks into me paying Michael out, I got a phone call from the Australian Taxation Office saying, Hey, dude. They don't say dude. Hey, Clint. Uh, this call is being recorded for training and educational purposes. Uh, we've picked up some anomalies with your bass and we are performing an audit on your business. Please make yourself available and have the following documents ready for blah, 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 blah. Have a nice day. And those, that kind of phone call, your whole heart just sinks and you're like, Whew. and I wasn't educated enough around what we were doing. I trusted that Michael and the accountant were taking care of the numbers and that I was taking care of my side and that it was all cool. I still take responsibility because I should have, as a director of a company, you need to take responsibility for knowing your shit. And I didn't know my shit. So I reached out to Michael and said, hey, um, we're getting audited. Um, 
like this is the dates and stuff this is what they want to do and his response was of the effect of that like you're the owner of the business now so that's your thing to deal with um i don't know how i can be of any help and so i went all right cool and spoke to the ato had the meetings this dude from the ato rolls in like exactly what you would expect like he looked textbook auditor like light blue shirt dark blue pants black lace-up shoes thick glasses gray solid briefcase like the kind of thing that you would have bought in the 80s and he sat down and i was like hey mate how are you he's like yep good I'm like you want a coffee he's like i'm what do you think this is kind of thing like i'm not this isn't a we're not having fucking coffee he didn't say that but you can't give me a coffee no i'm fine i've got like I just need these documents. So they started the audit. I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I wasn't insured for it. I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't educated for it. All I knew was that um, we were, I was in trouble. Michael wasn't really coming to the party around it and that the ATO, I didn't know where this could go. I'm like, are we gonna lose the business? Am I gonna lose my house? How, what's gonna happen? So luckily the audit was only around Bass and IAS. I say luckily because we weren't doing anything wrong elsewhere, but a big audit requires a large involvement from your administration and your accounting team, and that costs money. So they just said, look, we just need you to give us your, proof, like your wages of everything you'd paid, uh, all of your wages and everything for, uh, and your Bass statements for the last two years, and then they'll work it out. So they did all that. And through the whole process, I was really honest and I was like, look, I don't know how this happened. I don't, um, I don't know what I'm, what the, what's going to happen here. I'm kind of scared, but all I know is like, I don't want the business to close and I don't want to lose the company. I don't want any of these staff to lose their jobs. And I, and I guess I'm happy to work with you guys to get this right, but I don't know a lot of what's happened. Like, and sadly with a partnership, and the reality of a partnership is that it's a joint in several situations. So if there's two partners, one of them's there, one of them's not, one of them's got assets, one of them doesn't, um, the ATO don't really care where the money comes from. They're gonna take their pound of flesh from the person that's sitting right in front of them. So I kind of had no choice. Um, the net result of that was a $140,000 bill from the ATO. Part of that was legitimately just tax that we hadn't paid for our staff. You guys, when you do your tax return as employees, send through your documentation and you say, well, I earned $50,000 from WaterPro and I paid $12,000 in tax. And the ATO are like, hang on a second. WaterPro haven't given us that 12 grand. Let's go talk to WaterPro. So $140,000 bill, I managed to negotiate a payment arrangement um, down where I paid that 140 off over about 20 months. Um, I negotiated a seasonal payment arrangement where I'd pay more off in my good months and less off in my bad months because water pro obviously is busier in, in the hot than it is in the cold and paid that down. And then at, at some point there, I fired that accountant and I made, so I was working with a business coach at that point. Michael was still around when we were working with the business coach um, and Starry put us in touch with Dion and said, look, you need an accountant that knows what he's doing. You need a young accountant that can grow with you you need to meet this Dion, he's the next up and comer at Hood Sweeney. Like, I think it might've been Shearer and Ellis then, but he's your guy. So we'd moved from 
dealing with the accounting firm we were with to, to Dion. And I even remember then, like, I didn't even want to have a conversation with my accountant about firing him. Like, I hate firing people so much. Even if they're not the right fit for my business, I'll, I'd rather me hurt financially than have the difficult conversation and it's something that I still struggle with today. So firing an accountant is quite uh, a process because you need to almost get one of the account, your former accountant needs to sign some paperwork and authorize everything over to your new account. It's probably like moving from a doctor to a doctor, all your files have to go over there. So, But our accountant was really good. Um, every one of the difficult conversations I've been worried about having, nearly every single one of them has resulted in a positive result. And I talk about that some, I used to talk about it a lot more, like have your difficult conversations because you often find the other parties in exactly the same position. They're like, ah, oh, it's not working. And people aren't dumb. They know that it's not working. They're just waiting for the conversation and they're probably just as reluctant to have it as you. So I had that conversation, moved to Dion. It was a blessing, man. Like changed my view on everything. I started to learn about the Australian taxation system and my obligations and I promised never to be in a position like that again. So that's when we started setting up um, spreadsheets on like who's when the bass is due, who's lodged it, how much got paid, has it been paid, staple the receipt, like really analog versions of this, but this beautiful tracking so like thing that I had because I'm like, what are our obligations? I need to know all of them. When do they need to be paid? Has it been paid? Yes, 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 yes. So now we're at the other end where we're saving, we've got a savings account for our tax and we've, we're ready so that there's no surprises and um, Michael and I were paying ourselves the salary or the wage that we thought we were worth without really understanding the profit of the business. So we didn't have the money to pay those bills because hypothetically, say WaterPro or Fluid Designs in that year made $40,000 profit, we'd paid ourselves 50 grand each. So the money that should have gone to the ATO wasn't there, so we, didn't, we couldn't do it. So I don't know whether or not that was something that he intentionally overlooked or accidentally overlooked. Um, we were both very inexperienced. Um, it taught me a lot and I wouldn't change it, um, but there were some periods through there where there's some blurry periods thanks to red wine and um, late nights and lack of sleep and new parent, new business owner. So, yeah. I guess what happened next around, well, like after the partnership dissolved, the ATO stuff was out of the way, I kind of was able to have this collective exhale as a company. Um, I think for my team, working for one director is easier than working for two. And I think partnerships are really challenging and um, I think Michael or I would have taken WaterPro to the next level in different ways but we were never going to go to the next level together because we had dramatically different ideas around what the business should be doing, how it should be done, software should be, we should be using, um, the amount of money we should be spending on marketing or human, you know, or um, breakfasts, um, how to treat staff, how to onboard staff, how to pay staff. Like We had just very different views on it. So um, after Michael left, we had um, Matt came back. He, he had been running his business for a while um, I talked to him, we'd stayed friendly, um, and I spoke to him about coming back, and so Matt came back, uh, and then we started um, the journey of, 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 I guess, independent directorship of me growing this company exactly how I wanted to grow it. I chose how we 
the hours that we worked. I chose who was rostered to work. I chose the uniforms. I chose what we were going to have for the breakfast. I chose how we were going to market it. I chose the software. So there was no democratic process that had to occur where it would go to a, me and Michael and actually get some time to talk about it. It was just me saying we're doing this and we did it. So we were able to move faster and I think that um, that nimble and fast behavior that the company now had was able to really um, accelerate its its growth for that probably mid-stage. So we obviously had the, the startup stage where Michael and I were trying to get it off the ground. Then the middle stage where we were kind of like finding our feet and understanding who we were as a company. And now we're in the that third stage of um, we really know what we're doing. We understand our market. We've got good market awareness. We're a 10 year old brand. Now it's time to like rinse and repeat and really replicate that. I knew that we needed a way to connect with people um, and that I've always been a fan of connecting over food and drink and breaking bread and um, working for Italian businesses. You, you saw these event based um, things. Bianco's were great at it. Frank learned from Bianco's. He's then taught me and I kind of had this like, I don't know, five year uh, MBA at Newton's that was a family oriented, cultural, help each other out, do the right thing by clients driven MBA more than a corporate structure bullshit like this is the profit and you have to make sure, like it wasn't a numbers based MBA, it was a human based MBA which is beautiful because it's the way it should be for me. Um, so we just started doing these barbecues. So we would do once a month um, at Stepney, I don't know what it was, but I think it was the last Friday of the month. I think honestly at the, at the start it was really getting a cart and a beer and then we were having Friday beers and eventually it became breakfast and I would drive to Coles at, at Stepney, get two dozen, um, no, one dozen English muffins, one kilo of bacon, one dozen eggs and a packet of plastic cheese, the Kraft singles in plastic and we would do 12 bacon and egg muffins and we'd have too much. And that was how it all started. And it just kept, it kept happening and then we, it became a cult thing that people knew that the last Friday of the month, you go to WaterPro, you catch up with old mate who you used to work with at the council or you kind of bump into your family and friends and my mates that I went to school with would come past and have a coffee. At that point we had a, a Nespresso pod machine. That was our first, was that our first coffee machine? No, we bought, I remember we bought these $383 eBay coffee machines that had like a little milk thing with the plastic hose and you'd tip the beans in it and it would grind it and make the coffee and just like the foam would come out like pieces of shit and we would, that was how we made our coffees and then I remember having so much trouble like Michael was arguing with it because we were, we were buying them on eBay because we used to sell a lot on eBay so we'd buy stuff on eBay and use our PayPal and like trying to send these coffee machines back so we ended up moving to Nespresso pods and we did we were buying two, three hundred pods at a time. We'd only buy the Ristretto, which is the black pod. That's the, the best pod that Nespresso do. And we'd usually do two pods, double shot, foam of milk. And we, that, people liked that coffee. That was the coffee that we had. That's all we could afford. So it's always been part of the culture um, that we did the breakfasts. It's now just gone nuts. I love that. Like barbecue days for me are the best. Being able to have, because I, I don't want to work. I, I hate working. I don't want to sit down and look at spreadsheets and you know, do this and that. I want to shake hands and make eye contact and share food and share drinks and share stories and be part of the community and understand what people are doing and strategize about things that we can do. I hate all the other shit. So those Fridays is permission for me to get to, like now, meet, I guess we have 60 or 70 brioche 
at the two main locations and then I think we have 20 or 30 here at Dry Creek and I get to talk to people staff that haven't seen me for ages in a relaxed environment over food customers like everyone knows I'm going to be there so even like I, I don't know how this is going to play out over the next 20 years I've got a pretty good idea but I still want to go to the barbecues now that might be mean that I can only go to Brisbane once a year but I want to be at the barbecue at, at our Brisbane store and then I want to maybe spend a couple of weeks in Queensland and then go to our other store and then fly to Sydney and do the like those are the days that I enjoy the most because that's when people are out there relaxed, at their most relaxed, and I get to give back to our community, which are so supportive. So, so this is our um, starter month barbecue at Railways. It's usually a lot better than this, and unfortunately, Mother Nature decided that we needed more rain for the for the plants and for the oceans and for the rivers. Um, usually, we'd have mm, thirty or forty people come through Railways for this Waterford Kent Town. Oh, we get more actually. We can sixty. Sixty. Yeah. Sorry, this is Mudge. Um, usually he complains about standing behind the barbecue, but today... I never complain. He never complains. Um, yeah, so we have a barbecue, we invite customers. It's a, it's a thank you more than a please. It's just designed to say, you know, thanks for either being a customer or even just thinking about coming by and buying some stuff. Um, we don't expect people to buy stuff while they're here. It's just a, um, a way of us connecting with our community and then they're giving them an opportunity to connect with each other, which is often quite um, cool to see when they, see you, man. When they, um, you know, one of them will contract another one of them to do some work for them, or, um, you know, they, they went to trade school together and they haven't seen each other for a while, so. It's, uh, it's this, usually with less rain and more people. Um, Rob Cooper from Distinctive Gardens gave me a book called Built to Sell, which was a hard copy book. And at that point, I was, I was really trying to find out more about everything. I wanted to understand how to run business. I wanted to understand, um, you know, how to, what a profit and loss was and strategies around marketing. And I was listening to audiobook after audiobook after audiobook. So this was the period probably before Spotify became a thing and where Apple iPods existed, not iTunes. So this is when the phone and the music device were still kind of separate, but it was becoming more phones. Amazon, I'm pretty sure, had Audible at that point, um, and I started listening to a lot of audiobooks. Uh, and one of the audiobooks I listened to was called The Pumpkin Plan. And, you know, I think after Michael left, I was really trying to stamp my brand on the company because it was always this two person, fuzzy, wishy washy, non cohesive, like we do irrigation like this, but only if Michael and Clinton both agree on it. Whereas I was like, no, like this is what we stand for. And I started listening to books and I was sending like, um, you know, those books to Matt. Matt, I think Matt was managing the shop at the time. Um, so I was sending him books like, listen to this one, this is wicked, listen to this one. And so the pumpkin plan really gave me a clear understand. Like, I think it's, it's really like the pumpkin plan and Gary V and everything that you kind of see me involved in didn't tell me um, what to do. It, it kind of helped me understand that it's what I knew and what I truly believed in. And it just gave me almost like a shield to go, now I'm doing this. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with my content now is say, like, well, I'll make it in the car with Clint that says, you know, go communicate better with someone because you're gonna get a better result. I hope that that gives someone a shield to say, this is this is a video I watched. It just it's a bit of a soft entry. So after the pumpkin plan, I was like, yeah, like I mean, I've always hated the um, 
We need a company mission statement. Let's sit in a room for a whole day and write down 20 words that make mean what our company means and then we'll circle them and we'll pay a consultant five grand and we'll get a fucking piece of paper with five words and now we've got a new logo that's another 10 grand. Like, it doesn't feel right for me. I acknowledge that it's great for so many companies, but I really, like, I wasn't looking for a democratic, like, all-in whiteboarding session around our values. I knew what, like, when a company, when you're a sole director of a company with five or eight or ten staff, the company's values are almost your values, right? That's why you see these things, like, see massive changes when guys like Steve Jobs leave Apple. Culturally, the leader's values and the company's values are so in line, a new leader comes in with slightly different values, you've got these concerns. So, it was really easy for me to come up with the 12 immutable laws off the back of that book. I think I ripped a few off from them. Um, and then I rolled it out and we just, the guys loved it. They're like, yeah, that's funny. And it's like, you know, no dicks allowed and fuck normal. And everyone's like, oh, that's like, you've got swear words in their corporate stuff. Oh my God, well, how edgy. But it's just how I felt. And I think it made it really easy for the guys to articulate uh, our values and be be really confident that they could go out into the public and be like, we won't deal with that person because they're a fuckhead and they've continuously been a fuckhead and they don't pay their bills on time and they don't do this and they don't do that. Whereas if you work for McDonald's or whatever, the customer's always right. They could take a shit on the counter and flick it in your face and you'd have to say sorry and clean it up and like, can I get fries with that? Like it's not, we're not that company and I think it, it empowered my team to, um, they had something to believe in and they had a document digitally or physically that they could wear like that that, st that stood for something and i think it actually changed it changed the culture the public saw it for what like it made, it made it very easy for someone if they wanted to come and work for us to determine whether or not it was in line with their values it made it really easy for a client that we were chasing to understand if we were the right company for them and i think it's helped us retain both staff and clients because we've made it really clear before we start to have the relationship what the relationship's going to be like so that there's no ambiguity and then like they're not coming in and three months later going you know this isn't in line with what i thought it was going to be so i think two the two things that massively impacted uh water pros growth would be the 12 immutable laws being publicly there and us tracking uh, budgeting and tracking our sales daily that would be the like that has been heavily, heavily tied to the success of Waterpro. Lawn Hub came about because, uh, because of Waterpro. So Waterpro was a, um, and it is an irrigation business and was doing irrigation. And obviously, I, as I've just kind of talked about, I was spending time listening to audiobooks and I'd started spending some time on Facebook and um, trying to grow the company's uh, Facebook followers and trying to get more engagement and trying to sell irrigation through social media and I saw this Facebook page pop up called Lawn Porn and I was like oh that's interesting like he had 7,000 page likes at the time and we had two and a half and I was like holy shit like this page is two months old and it's got all these likes was, and this is back you know these weren't paid likes like people actually liked this page it wasn't from like advertising so I, I ended up reaching out to him and saying hey um, I own an irrigation shop in Kent Town and we do this and this and this. Like, is it possible for me to say sponsor your page or pay to share a post or whatever because he had so many followers and he was like, oh, I don't even know what that looks like. Like, I've, I've never done that before. What does that mean? And we just started to have this dialogue and we became friendly and 
um, decided that Waterpro were going to, you know, sponsor some pages. And I think at the time he was like, no, 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 look, I don't want any money for it. Like, I'm just happy to do stuff in the community and whatever else. So we were doing, um, like, monthly giveaways. And then I ended up putting an irrigation system in his house for free, making videos, and he had a YouTube channel. And at that point, Lawn Porn was just a Facebook page. It didn't sell anything. And then it led into him having a conversation uh, about wanting to start having a brand. So he decided that he wanted to sell fertilizer and they were going to have lawn porn fertilizer. So he went and trademarked the brand and got the logo designed and did all that. And at that point, I was spending a bit of time consulting in an inofficial, unofficial, unofficial capacity. Uh, so he'd ring me and like, hey, I, this is what the fertilizer manufacturers are saying. What do you think? And I ended up... Um, having a handshake deal with him to help him with the business. So he was like, look, you, you, he actually suggested it. He's like, you're doing more for the business than um, is reasonable for nothing in return. I want to give you part of the business so that you've got equity in it and you can help grow. So I was like, sick. And he's like, we'll give you, we want to give you 20%. And I said, look, I think 20 is too high for what I'm doing. I can't ever promise that I'm going to spend a lot of time on this. You're going to get the quality of my brain, not the the quantity of my time and I'll come to you with ideas but I can't sit in a room for a whole day and spend time on things because I'm running my own business. Yep, cool, 10% it is, handshake deal, no worries. Started going to some fertilizer meetings and meeting with you know big, big companies about um, them making fertilizer on behalf of lawn porn. Um, it got, it was, the fertilizer was being made and we were buying it and selling it. So WaterPro I think were the only people selling the fertilizer at that point. And we were doing, you know, seven grand, 10 grand months of lawn porn um, through WaterPro. Uh, and then at the, there was a point when the company was worth $140,000 in our minds based on profit for the year and, you know, a basic way of working out the value of a business. And he, he was obviously uh, felt like maybe I wasn't doing as much as I should have been doing for my 10%. We had no written contract, so he rang me and said, look, if you still want to be involved, you need to give me $14,000 for the 10% or, like, you can't be involved. I don't, I basically don't need you to be involved unless you want to give me money. So, uh, that caused me to go into Clint mode, which sometimes, um, when I... I think the best way to put it is I spend more time than is healthy trying to balance the ledger of morality. And if I see something happen that's morally inaccurate or morally out of balance, and I have a way to rebalance that morally, I will almost kill myself trying to recorrect that moral balance. Um, and what I saw as an immoral balance for that, I when I'm gonna do something about this, uh, the only way I know how, like, I'm not going to go have a street fight. So I'm starting a company. I'm coming after you. So, um, you know, funnily enough, WaterPro, a lot of the fire in my stomach around WaterPro comes from a single conversation with a, an employee of a competing irrigation shop 10 years ago. And it still fuels me today. And this person doesn't even work for them anymore. And it pissed me off that much that I want to destroy the company that he worked for. It's just me. Like, it's business, business is a game for me. I've got a super competitive nature. Um, and if you do the right thing by me, I will have your back till we both die. But if you do the wrong thing by me in business, um, then the gloves are off and we're going to go crazy. So Lawn Hub started from that. It was kind of meant to be a bit of a joke and a fuck you at that point. Like, 
you know, like if you think you can do that, I will do this. And then it just kept escalating and escalating and escalating to the point now where we've got uh, one and a half staff and, you know, a hopper and fertilizer and we're getting manufacturing done and, you know, we're spending money on Facebook ads and we've got a website and we're shipping across the country daily and we're having conversations with resellers that are looking to stock stuff for the next season. Like, I don't have any anger to the situation anymore. Um, now, it's purely, this is, a, like, I have a responsibility to keep this going. I've spent... $20,000 on trademark law, trying to fight one of the corporates who tried to trademark my name. I had, I've hired staff, I've got people that have left 10 year careers like Max to come and work for me. Like I've got a responsibility to turn this into something really big. Um, and it's kind of outgrown revenge now and it's actually just its own pure thing. So I had been talking publicly a lot about going and opening a shop down south. I, my plan was to have a Water Pro Lonsdale. I was gonna stick it directly across the road from Reese Irrigation and be able to wave to them in the morning when we opened. Like it was, there was gonna be that much direct action. And uh, Lachlan from Jeffries, who were the previous owner of Railways, had caught a snippet of me talking about it at some point. And we did a podcast and um, he said to me after the podcast, hey, I, I know you've been talking about moving down to uh, down south. Have you thought about maybe buying a landscape supplies yard and then putting an irrigation shop in it? And I'd, what, I think I knew that they owned it, but it wasn't really on the top of my radar or the top of my mind or at the forefront of what I was thinking about. And I was like, holy shit. And in that meeting, I was like, yeah, done, I'll buy it. Like this is split second. And that was the decision. The decision was made. Obviously then follows eight to 12 months of uh, negotiating and dialogue and everything else. So Railways is a 40 year old business thereabouts. I, I only bought this business 18 months ago from Jefferies who are one of our suppliers. They make mulch or manufacture mulch. And the whole, I guess, business model around Railways is supplying building materials and landscape materials to builders and landscapers and homeowners. Uh, one part of railways that wasn't probably one of their key strengths was the irrigation side of the business. That's something that we've brought into it from the water pro standpoint. And now we've got a full irrigation shop here to complement the landscape supplies and building supplies. So I'll show you around, uh, give you a bit of an idea of what we do. So this little area here is affectionately known as the bag shed. Uh, all the products that are underneath this area are bag products that need to be kept uh, protected from the rain and the sun. Uh, ideally the products are turning over quite regularly so uh, sun's not as much of a problem as rain so what you'll see here is things like dried sand builders cement concrete mix mortar mix those products that either get water added to them to turn them into a product or things that uh, need to be swept in like a sweeping sand that can't get wet so it's not ideal um, and it's not the perfect shed but unfortunately I don't own this land it's land that I rent from a landlord uh, so any improvements I make to this land need to be really thought about because it's obviously, I need a return on investment around that period. We've got about seven or eight years left on our lease here. So there's some improvements I'm happy to make and some that I'm not, and we're just working through that at the moment. So that's the bag shed. This is the sales office for the landscape supply side of the business. So when I bought the business, the irrigation shop was there and the landscape supply shop was here. It still is. Um, and it's kind of disconnected and it's something that we're working on. But as I said before, I don't own this land, so I don't want to spend unnecessary amounts of money building a new building. Um, so we're, get, we're trying to work out a transportable solution for here. What you can see behind me now is an unfinished, unstarted landscape display. 
Uh, we're going to build a really nice landscape here so that people can come out here, sit down and feel what their backyard might feel like using the products that we sell to give them a real idea around, uh, I guess, choosing their products. So if you have a look through here, it's quite pokey and disconnected. It's something that I'm aware of and that I want to fix, but it works. So in this building, we stock products that are most likely to be used by the landscape community that's not irrigation. So glues, additives, cements, weed mats, plastics, stormwater fittings, uh, viscose, that kind of thing. So we've done the best we can with the area that we've got. All these shelves are new. Uh, when we first bought the business, they had, um, just walk in front of it, you can use it. We had uh, timber sleepers sitting on top of pavers. I'll see if I can get a photo of it and give it to Aiden, he can cut it in. Um, they just used stuff that they had in the yard. So this is the kitchen. Um, usually if the oven's on really low, you know Phil's here. Phil um, starts warming his lunch up when he gets here in the morning and warms it up at like 40 degrees for about 15 hours. But he's not here today. This is the coffee machine. Um, I've talked about it before plenty of times. Before we actually had paid the settlement to buy the business, this coffee machine was installed. This is the first thing I'll do in any new business is install the coffee machine. Um, Matt has worked around us long enough to realize that me making vlogs is less important than him selling shit. So he will walk in front of the camera, unlike the other guys. Um, so yeah, we've got coffee here. Uh, we've had to start bringing in almond milk as the world becomes more sensitive with their gut health. So we do that now. And then this is the office. It's where all the, all the action happens. So as I said before, it's quite pokey. Um, it's a house, I think, or it was a house. Um, what the fuck, do people live here? On this block? Like 100 years ago? <laughs> do people live in this? And then this is the sales counter. So this would, the shelves they had here were very similar. Um, built from old railway sleepers. So Railways was Railway Sleeper Company, that's right. And then it got shortened to Railways. This is Vince. If he smiles, capture it on camera and we can send video of him smiling to everyone. Uh, that's a very brief uh, introduction to what the business is about uh, and what we do. Uh, it's quite a, I, I enjoy the business. The customer base that we work with in the landscape industry is unbelievable. Everyone's good. There's no these crazy hero types that think they're better than everyone. And if they are, they're buying from our competitors anyway. But um, that is that. There's a lot of things I want to change about this place around the kind of displays and the buildings and that. But the reality is um, all of that costs money and we will just do it as we have time. I think Waterpro at the time, that, year, that financial year, they'd done 4.9 or 4.7 or thereabouts. Um, you know, we weren't super powerful. Like there wasn't like I had a cash reserve that I could go, I had to borrow to buy railways. Um, but when, it all, when, I, when I got it all down on paper, it made a lot of sense. You know, the business was, able to pay its own way, it already had staff, it already had a 40 year location reputation, it already had an irrigation business, albeit small. Um, I was looking to negotiate to buy it off of an existing supplier so that that was gonna strengthen the relationship. Um, and we just started talking about it. And um, the you go through a process of finding an agreed price and doing, doing due diligence and finding things that are that you have differing opinions on around the value of a business and then you go find the money and you go to the bank and you ask for money and they say you're an idiot and you say why am I an idiot and they're like this we don't agree with this valuation and then you go all right let's do this and then you do um you get a a company to do a different valuation and then you work out a way so I that was probably 
buying railways was probably like the earliest like one of the earliest periods where I started having anxiety attacks um, from from memory because I talk such a big game and I'm out there like I'm gonna do a hundred million dollars a year of annual turnover at some point in my life and then I'm gonna go buy railways I'm going to Lonsdale I'm going out south and I do it on purpose to try and motivate myself but I'm out there publicly saying this is what I'm gonna do and there were points there where railways felt like it wasn't gonna happen and the deal was gonna fall down and that was probably one of those real pivotal moments in my life where I worked out that it doesn't matter what other people think about what you're doing. It's, you're the one that has to live by your decisions. And, you know, I, don't, I think dad wasn't supportive of, at, of the deal as it stood. He wasn't against us buying it. He was just against the deal. And dad's someone that I go to for that kind of um, counsel because he's run businesses for his whole adult life. Um, and then Dion was against it. And I was like, fuck, like, but it, it, I had to be the one that slept at night knowing that I chose to walk away from the deal, not that I was taking their advice and then agreeing with it. So um, I ended up making a counter offer. So we made an offer, they declined the offer, we made another offer and they accepted the offer. Um, and um, then we went through the process of you know, financing it and then communicating with the staff around the fact that we were coming and then letting the market know and then I remember September 1st I had in mind that I wanted to start trading and then something we were having a lot of trouble getting the finance over the line for whatever reason and I think Lachlan was like it's all right we can just wait till October it doesn't matter I'm like no like I, I've just I have to do this like I was so adamant like I didn't care I was <clears throat> gonna go you know it was the same shit happened here when we tried to move like to Dry Creek like someone in an office usually fucks up my plans because the document got stuck up someone's ass or fuck it, whatever it is. So I'm like, where's my loan? And they're like, oh, who knows? Like it's, you know what, you know how these things happen. I'm like, this is my fucking life that you're talking about. Like I'm trying to start a new business and you can't, like if you're gonna buy a business from someone mid-year, it's not September 14th. Like you have to close off a month. So the good thing with September is it's, a, it's the start of a quarter. So what, you wanna, you wanna run it to like October or do what, do you just wait till January? So. You're going to have staff that don't agree with what you're doing. You're going to have staff that are like, we've always done it this way. We want to do it that way. You're going to find that the loader's got this problem that costs five grand. A clutch blows. The software's not compatible. You know, the landlord is different to deal with than the landlord you've got. Like, there's just this multitude of things that you don't think about. So the that first, I don't know. I was there. I worked there fairly heavy for that first period. Um, until I kind of felt comfortable that we'd got enough back. And then I had to come back to, to Waterpro because we got these plates that we're spinning and you kind of got to jump back and forth. So um, there's a lot I would do differently if I had to do the railways thing again. Um, it's, it's a unique type of business. Um, it's not as profitable as irrigation. So it's not, it wasn't the smartest business decision. Um, I don't regret doing it. I like the fact that we went through the process and I think it's probably prepared me for um, acquisitions that we're gonna have that are, even, that are really important when we're trying to buy a $15 million business in another state. I think I'll, I'll be, you know, I've, I've got those kind of scars that have healed over that I now know what I'm dealing with when I, when I do that. And um, it's grown, you know, we were up 20% from when we bought the business. Um, the COVID, 19 pandemic helped us out a lot. Uh, we had more business from that and we obviously had the government support. Um, if I didn't own the business, I wouldn't have got the government support. So it kind of worked out. It's working out. <laughs> I got my face on a truck.
That's all that really matters. I think because I talk such a big game, if I don't meet, like if my, my actions don't back up my mouth, I get anxiety. And the problem is my, my mouth ain't stopping, like I'm gonna keep talking. So I kind of start these internal wars against other businesses to motivate myself or I go out in public and say, I'm gonna do this and then I have to do it because my pride is on the line and that matters to me. My reputation's on the line, and that matters to me. And there's everyone would be like, "Yeah, it doesn't matter, man. You, you, you're going to have some failures. <laughs> no fucking way. Like, you can't be like, oh, I'm comfortable with that." So I think I started to have this um, this anxiety display itself because I was worried that I wasn't going to get there or whatever. And that's and I obviously knew who Jody was around that point, and I'd started. Um, First, with, with some personal coaching stuff. And I, like, I remember a personal coaching session with her. I was on the floor in her kitchen and I had to throw up. We were trying to do some like therapy and I was so hungover. Like I don't even know how, the, how I got to her house. I think I caught an Uber because I'd left my car somewhere and I was still drunk. And during the session kind of sobered up and started vomiting in her backyard to enable myself to... Um, to be able to get therapy around my anxiety and my alcoholism and my just general dickishness. And she was like, this is good. Like, let's try and use this. You know, you're vomiting. Let's tie that vomit to bread. And she's like, let's, this, what's something that you could happily not eat anymore? So we're like trying to deal with my weight. And she's like, let's get rid of carbs. So you just threw up. Now imagine that feeling and we're like kind of neuro-linguistically trying to connect that to bread so that I don't eat bread again. Um, and I don't have, like, I think Jodie would have more vivid memories of that because I don't know whether or not I block out stuff subconsciously because it's so painful or if I've damaged my brain so much from abusing it with alcohol that I genuinely don't remember. But I have these things where people are like, oh, when was that? Like, you talked to me about the years. I'm like, I don't really know. And I don't, I don't know if it's because it's just detail I don't give a shit about. Like, I don't have to be like able to get up on stage and accept an award and go, back in 2009, like I just, I'm not thinking about it, but then you'll ask me about something else and I'll know, I, I know how much a PGP cost us in 2009. Like, like it's just the weird things resonate with me. So Jody started working with me there and I, I think we did some NLP, she did some NLP with me um, and then I think whether or not her business was kind of going in more of a coaching direction or if she thought Tony was more appropriate to work with me, she put us in touch with Tony Everard who was only doing NLP at that point whereas Jody was doing a lot more business coaching and NLP and facilitating things and she had, she's had she got so much shit going on. And so Tony did a breakthrough with me um, and I don't know how well I did with that because I don't know if I was my full self or I was open enough to it but... I think after the, I did that stuff with Jody and I did the stuff with Tony and then after that, things just started to improve. Like, I think I kind of um, detached from the result and wasn't so concerned about it and, um, you know, I wasn't so worried about it if we didn't get there and I think I, I was almost having anxiety, like alcohol, help, alcohol causes anxiety for me. Plus, I think because I knew that I was destroying my body I was getting anxiety about that because I was worried about dying and then I'm going out publicly saying we're going to grow a hundred million dollar company and this is how I'm going to do it and then I'm not doing it so I'm getting anxiety about that and so there's just all this shit going on and then fucking COVID-19 hits so 
that that was an interesting time because I remember the March being quite stressful. You know, I just bought a new business. I had a lot of debt. I had, you know, a lot of opinions from a lot of people that, you know, or you better, you know, every business owner that I knew was like, save your money. We're like, this is going to be bad. Like we're not, and everyone stopped spending money. I had landscapers ringing me that were like, oh, we've got, uh, say we had six jobs for $400,000 each for the next 12 months. Two of them have just canceled altogether. Four of us for their like deposits back. Like shit was just cascading. And I was like, that's not going to be good for us. Like that's, they are our biggest customer. There's another biggest customer. Developers are like worried about immigration. The house is going to be selling what's going to go on. And I remember talking to Dion and Dion was like, the government are going to do something. They have to do something. Every other government's done stuff just watch like something's coming something's coming and i remember sitting there i reckon there was there's been periods where you've been with me for those news forecasts and i'm strategizing the whole time so i'm going all right this is gonna happen this is gonna happen this is gonna happen and i remember when they brought out the 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 job keeper job seeker and all that shit i was just like and just exhaled because i could have just fired 20 staff and probably financially would have been fine myself but i don't like that and it was never that was never one of the options on the table was never fire all the staff and i saw i mean you would have seen it man like people just firing people they didn't know what was going to happen but they just went and this is a very very good insight into the kind of directors but that was the time when you see that your directors true colors when they're in trouble because we've had all these all these years of feast 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 and we're still feasting like someone's got to pay for this shit and then a hint of famine and you get businesses firing their whole business i'm not paying rent we're not paying tax we're shutting our companies down we're closing the doors it's like hang on a second we've known about this for like a week let's digest this a bit more and like see what's going to happen and i was sending out videos to the staff just reassuring them that things are going to be okay i've got a strategy for what we're going to do and we didn't get rid of anyone um we were supported WaterPro was supported Railways was pumping. Like, I remember April, we did a record month and I was there 30 days straight. We just didn't stop. And that was when I was drinking at my heaviest. And I think I started drinking heavily from the stress of COVID. And then when everything was good, I was like, well, there's not much else to do. I guess I'll just keep drinking. And I, I was drinking 20 standard drinks a day, back to back to back to back, driving from railways, going to the ad, getting some beers, going home, riding myself off, going to sleep, waking up and doing it all again. And then I guess at some point, I think everyone's been through this, at some point you wake up and you're like, hang on a second, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Like I can't drink my way through COVID. Like we've been supported, the industries are fine, everyone's happy. Adelaide's been super lucky with lockdowns. Maybe I should cut back on the alcohol now. So I think a lot of people have been through that. And I've spoken, it's, it's interesting. I've, obviously, the more I talk about alcoholism and um, my recent like changes with alcohol, um, the more people reach out to me. They're like, yeah, I was like smashing beers and like, you know, people that you don't even think about that it's like, no, I was like drinking to get to sleep, two bottles of wine. So um, COVID-19, was a a testing experience but our businesses have come out better for it because of the amount of money in the industry i feel so much for gyms and restaurants and you know um, hospitality venues live music like people that 
they legitimately like six months no trade like no money and the government support i think the government did the best they possibly could and i have no criticism over what they did i just think that sadly we we were probably one of the lucky ones and there was probably some industries that maybe didn't quite get the the fairest level of support but there was no better way to do it than how the government did it because of the um you, you just have to make one rule and try to make sure it covers as many people as possible um, and i think a few people probably fell through the cracks but um, all in all the country's strong um, to the point where we're struggling to find skilled people to perform the work now because there's so much money in the system but we'd been talking about opening another location um, you know in business i think things move quite fast you know we kind of were like all right COVID's done government money's in the system there's a lot going on um, all of our customers are starting to get that, that public sentiments raised again and there's people signing their contracts again and there's like we're talking to large developers and, and um, clients that are doing that kind of work for them that have got booked out to you know 12, 24 months because the government put so much money into the, the system around housing grants and getting block like developers were try like, trying to build um, roads quick enough to sell blocks to get slabs down so people could get their government grants for their houses so there's just it just went nuts and it was just the right time for us we'd tried to open a location out north once before i talked about salisbury salisbury was a baby shop like you could almost fit salisbury in my office but we had to find another warehouse matt and i had talked about um the the budget for that you know you, you saw how many we had that office with all those people and then we had all these other people like jammed into the room and i think waterproof kent town had so many people and so many personalities in one room that it was starting to get a little bit abrasive and you know no one had any breathing space i mean even from a COVID standpoint i felt like you know there wasn't even enough room for us to actually have that many people so we were looking for warehousing i had this theory that stock was going to become hard to get uh, for a few reasons we'd actually had some bushfires here in australia in the january or december leading into the COVID shutdowns and i think a lot of people kind of got overlooked and forgotten about that and i, I had i'd thought that um, a lot of those bushfires in the rural areas or if there was any agricultural areas where they'd lost the irrigation system was we're going to have you know their insurances come through it all, all at around the same time and there was going to be this massive um, buoyancy of work around vineyards getting new irrigation systems put in or polypipe going out to run main lines to dams you know all through the adelaide hills we had all the like it was all blue line going out to try and get water to troughs and farms and so i was just like i feel like we're going to be low on irrigation and then when COVID hit and they're like you know boats aren't moving around and there's nothing leaving and like the world's angry at china for whatever reason and china's not going to supply stuff and i just felt it felt it was just a gut feeling like an educated gut feeling so we decided to open a warehouse here to be able to ensure that we hold a lot more stock um we couldn't have left it any longer we'd outgrown kent town so much like the, what jared's able to do here in a day would have taken four days down there because you're, you know those little toy puzzles that you had as a kid where it was a shape and there was only one square missing and you'd have to push the squares around to try and get like the right squares in the right order almost like a 2d rubik's cube our shop was a rubik's cube of of stock and you have to move two pallets to get one whereas here you just go get that one so dry creeks i get asked a lot about it and it, people are like oh how's dry creek doing and it's um if dry creek was solely dependent on the the, the amount of irrigation that we sold over the counter through that door we'd be broke dry creek's purpose was to house 
a large number of staff and to house a commercial uh, distribution side of the business of which it does beautifully. That shop is like a, um, you know, an added bonus. It's, it just sits off to the side and then people can come and buy stuff, but it's very, it's, it, and we haven't had a proper season yet. I think kind of once the weather gets hot and we start to see people that have say built houses in the north driving to here rather than driving into the city because this is a good option. I think we might start to see a bit more retail, but um, it was definitely the right decision. It's the right location. It's the right size. We've got room for growth. Um, the rent as a percentage of turnover is beautiful. It's close to my house, close enough to my house. Um, there's ample parking. It gives us a good training area. Obviously through the processes of buying new businesses and setting up new companies, um, we've got to a point now where we've got four companies. So Lawn Hub, Waterpro, Railways and Dirt Cart. Uh, Dirt Cart is an app that I'm getting built at the moment which you'll see more about in time. That's its own company. Uh, Lawn Hub we've talked about uh, and then Waterfront Railways you both, you're both you all aware of. Uh, the idea uh, once we had that many companies was to create a, uh, a holding company above that group uh, which we have called Hectagon. I laboured on that name for a long time where I was getting harassed and harassed and harassed but it was really important for me to for that the parent company of all my companies so every other company we open from here on in will be under the Hectagon group. Um, it needed to mean something and I played with Clint Group and the Clint Group and Clint Co and it was very, I, found, I felt like it was a little bit too uh, self-indulgent and dickish and you know, cool, you, if that's what you do, like call your business your name, that's beautiful. But for me, I felt like um, I'm such a team and goal-oriented director that I wanted it to be a team and goal-oriented name. So Hectagon is a 100-sided polygon uh, our, my goal, my personal goal in the business is to grow it to a $100 million company, 100-sided polygon, $100 million company. Uh, so we created that. Next financial year, uh, so the 21-22 financial year, our targets for WaterPro are $8 million of annual turnover for WaterPro. Railways is 5.5, Lawn Hub is one, and Dirt Cart's probably zero. Might do a little bit, but that'll be very kind of like beta testing with some people and seeing how that works. I don't imagine I will start any other companies this financial year. Um, I can't say I won't acquire any companies this financial year and I can't say I won't open any more locations this financial year. It's not something that I'm actively doing um, but for us to continue uh, I, I guess I'm going too slow in my mind for my $100 million. I think that um, we've spent enough time now learning what works and what doesn't work and what we want to do and what we don't want to do. Um, I've built a really strong team in my, in my finance part of my business is strong. My irrigation part of my business is strong. My lawn hub part of my business is strong. My railways part of my business is strong. My media part of my business is strong. My IT is really strong. I feel like we're ready. We're at this precipice of, or this like time where I'm about to fall off the edge of this waterfall and it's gonna be fucking nuts. Um, we're doing a lot of social. I'm trying to grow my personal brand. I'm trying to talk a lot about business. I'm trying to talk about kindness in business. I'm trying to talk about how I did my business and how I think it can help you grow your business. Um, 
so we don't have a real solid goal around the 100, but I'd like to do, I definitely want to be doing $100 million before I'm 50, which gives me 12 years. Uh, I don't like the idea of doing it with external investment, which makes it hard because we have to fund our own growth. We may end up getting to a point where I have to have a silent partner, like commercial investor, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think about it that much. Um, the process of chasing $100 million of annual turnover is more around what I do to do it, not getting there. So if it took me double the time, but I get to do it on my own and do it my way, it's probably the way I'm gonna choose. Um, WaterPro will be in every state of Australia before I die as a physical location. I don't expect railways will, it just depends. Um, I'm playing with the idea of a northern landscape supplies yard. Uh, I think if we open any more irrigation shops in South Australia, it'll be from acquisition, not from creation. I don't think we need any more irrigation shops in South Australia. I think um, if I went into a market, say, like uh, in the north, we'd be better off buying a shop in Gawler or Williston than opening one. I think if we went to Mount Barker, we'd be better off buying a shop than opening one. Um, maybe Port Adelaide, but we're pretty close now. You'd open one. Um, and then if we went into other states, or when we go into other states, um, it will only be when I'm confident that I understand the state that I'm going to. Um, and I'm really, really conscious to be respectful of the existing market. Um, and ideally, if we are acquiring companies to grow WaterPro, we will be acquiring businesses where their current directors' values are very in line with mine, so that the transition between owner to owner is strong and seamless, and that we're not having to reculture a business uh, to match the culture of ours, because for us to move fast, I don't want to have to do that. Um, and I know that in every state there would be businesses like WaterPro, I'd rather not compete with them. Um, and if they're at a point where they're looking for exit, then that's great. Lawn Hub's gonna be a, one of those little like explosive anomalies, I think. Um, I feel like that, that brand's getting to the age now where people know what it is. Um, we're getting interest from resellers. I have to make some strong or some hard decisions around the direct-to-consumer model versus reseller model in the next three to four months. Um, and what's gonna best work around I guess getting that brand out there, the goal was to get it into the hands of every household of Australia. Um, I think that's gonna be better done with a reseller model than a direct-to-consumer model. Hard thing with that is that the margins are pretty low for a reseller model because I'm trying to make sure that the, the homeowner is able to buy that fertilizer cheap so the direct-to-consumer model works. Playing with that, um, I think dirt cart long-term will probably be our most successful business. Um, and then um, obviously there's me. Uh, I'm looking to talk more about business. Um, I enjoy sharing my journey. I get a lot of dopamine and joy from talking business with people and sharing my ideas. I love looking at other people's businesses and kind of giving them my, my, my opinion on what they could do differently or what, they could, what I think they could do better. Might not be right, but it's what I think. Um, so I imagine you'll probably see me doing some more public speaking at some point, um, if anyone's interested to hear, hear me talk. Um, my health's probably gonna be a focus for the next 12 months and then onwards for the rest of my life. I feel like I've got a strong grasp on alcohol now. Um, I'm training three or four days a week now. Um, so if I can just rein in a 
my, my food intake, then I think there'll be a nice slow health growth. Like rather than being too crazy, I think in the past I've just been too um, on or off and yo-yo dieting. What we do is not unique, right? The only reason that we are as good as what we are is because of who we are, right? And the people that work for the company. And, you know, if anyone's looking to replicate what I'm doing externally and copy it or do it in their own field, the only thing that matters is how you treat people. And I think that there's people that are working for me today that are gonna still be here when we hit the 100 million because of how they've been treated. And the customers that we service are still gonna be part of the family when we hit the 100 million because of how we treat people. And I think that it's very easy for business owners to get caught up in what color the paint on the wall is and what color the stickers are on the, the logos and how thick the business cards are and whatever the fuck else, who you bank with and how much you pay for your FBOS fees. None of that matters. None of it matters more than the people that are involved in the business and how you treat those people. And if you can treat people well, they will elevate the business and the rest will take care of itself. So.